0: Welcome to Next Big Hits, Broadway Bullet, Volume 21. This is our last show of the 2006 season, even though we just celebrated Happy New Year. Yes, uh, this show and our past episodes are going to have to keep you satisfied until we return with our brand new season on Thursday, February 8th. We've got a lot of great stuff for this last episode as I'm talking with the Bindlestiff Family Circus, uh, the new play from the Czech Marionettes, Once There Was a Village, playwright Dan O'Brien, we got a song from Title of Show, and we got part two of our fantastic director's panel. So there's a lot of stuff to listen to. I'd like to take a quick moment to remind everybody that if you haven't already, please take a few minutes and fill out our listener survey at BroadwayBullet.com. I spend a lot of time putting together these shows, and I, I want to know that my efforts are being directed in the places that you enjoy the most, and especially for finding new content. So I'm definitely going to be listening to what you have to say. I'm cutting all these episodes, as I mentioned last week, in advance, so I still don't know really how many we've gotten, so I'm still pushing hard. We have gotten a few responses already in the first day since I posted up volume 19, so I appreciate you quick responders. Everybody else, please let me know what you're thinking. All right, let's jump right into the program now. La Mama in New York prides itself on presenting different and challenging works to the New York theatrical audience, and our next production is no different. We have Vít Hórzej from the Czech Marionettes Company, who's putting on the show Once There Was a Village in January. How are you doing? I'm all right. So first off, I guess, why don't you tell us a little bit about the the production and what it all entails. Sounds very intriguing.
2: Uh, It's... Inspired by a book by a friend of mine who unfortunately uh, passed away a year ago, uh an artist and a writer uh Yuri Kapralov who was uh, who resided in the East Village and wrote memoirs about the East Village of in the 60s and 70s when the neighborhood was burning and there was muggings every night and junkies all over the place not that they left totally but uh it's a quite a different neighborhood and that's the neighborhood I really uh, moved into in uh, 1980 we just, from there, decided to put on a show that would celebrate the East Village. From there, we took it to uh, the history of the East Village all the way back from before New Amsterdam. So we're starting with the swamp that used to reach all the way to Avenue A and uh, with the different animals in the swamp, and then it just develops through the years of tenements. And every 10 years or so, another Yuri. Uh, lands on these shores with his own story of um, oppression or or wars that uh, he's escaping, pogroms, uh, what have you, and then uh, just like Yuri uh, finds that there's war uh, or oppression or whatever in the new neighborhood, of course there's also moments of joy and we have a lot of songs to celebrate the joy. So this is told through, like,
0: puppeteering and marionettes and a lot of music and
2: traditional uh, the, music, right? The full full title of the company is the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater. Uh, but we uh, don't want to deceive people because this is our first show where we're not using marionettes. We've always used not marionettes only, but marionettes are not prevalent in this show. Actually, our prevalent puppet is uh, our vacuum cleaners in this show. All kinds of different found objects. There's a big plastic dog. Found Object Theater or Object Theater has been done a lot. It's a really great experience doing it. Uh, We've used it before but it's also the idea of the of the junk, the garbage strewn all over the streets. It's also the idea of that fabulous tower sculpture uh, that's made from found objects in the Avenue B Garden, Avenue B and 6th Street. Interestingly enough, Yuri mentions in his book going in this uh, uh, abandoned movie house that's used by junkies. And uh, it's totally dere- a derelict building that uh, happened to have stood exactly on the, in the same spot where the Avenue B Garden is now. Now, there's a lot of musical numbers in this as well, I understand. At this point, we have like 20 musical numbers, and I may have to pare them down. We just, yet again, want to range in style from folk songs of the different immigrant groups to all the other idioms that existed throughout the years in the East Village. We use seven different national, national folk songs. The Czech, uh, the lowest east side, uh, I'm a Czech, right, from Prague originally. Uh, The Lower East Side was a Czech and Slovak neighborhood and the Czechs got up at the end of the 19th century and moved to the Upper East Side. Their presence was very important. They lived there with the Germans and Irish and all the others. Uh, So for the Czechs, we are using a Hussite song, a Hussite chorale. The Hussites were religious fighters, followers of Jan Hus or Jan Hus as uh, uh, they pronounce him in the United States, uh, the first reformer of the church hundred years before Luther. He was burned at the stake. And he's kind of a symbol of Czech nationalism or national pride. Uh, and after his death, there was a whole series of wars of his followers. And actually, they did not start the fight. It was uh, They were crusaders sent into Bohemia. And they were defeated by this peasant army of Hussites and this most famous song. Put fear into the crusaders' hearts. So we're using this song. Yeah, so now these recordings we got from, these are from rehearsals right. from your show, right? Right, right, right. And so that's the first thing we're playing here is what you're talking that's about? That's the first thing we're going to play, right. All right. All oh,
3: right.
0: ho,
4: że koniec jest tych
2: snów, świt zerzyte. Lepcha te z na
5: boszne lechte,
4: pan naszego
2: wszystkim jest, nim bojojte
1: and then
2: We took this song, the the Hussites, or the descendants of Hussites, they they had to leave eventually because they were uh, persecuted by the Habsburgs, the Catholicism became the only accepted church, and they went through uh, Saxony, and uh, eventually, as German-speaking Moravian brethren, they came to this country. And and some were fake Catholics over the years and came back here with, with original Hussite beliefs, and eventually the Hussites joined the Presbyterian Church. And and we, we are imagining how this all happened and, and the people that are singing this song suddenly start speaking English, or not not suddenly, but over the years, or their descendants. And then they think, oh, let's change it into an American song. So we have a uh, gospel version of the Hussite song—you you wouldn't recognize so much the the melody. Mostly, it's the word. We play with it more. Uh, <coughs> we we will uh, have other versions of the Hussite song in a in a rock version. I think we have some more, and the same is happening. Another song that we're doing is the uh, New Colossus, as a kind of a hymn, and then it also morphs into rock into. It, it's not exactly a rock rock song, more like soul, and uh, then into uh, salsa version, representing yet another uh, ethnic group in the neighborhood. Let's listen to that uh, gospel version for a second now.
0: Oh.
1: Your wounds and promises, hundreds Hundreds more
3: promises, hundreds hundreds more more promises, promises, hundreds hundreds
6: more. Christ stands by your wounds and promises, hundreds more.
0: People are looking to come see Once There Was a Village at La Mama. When is it playing?
2: It's opening January 25th and running uh, through February 11th. It's running Thursday through Sundays at 7.30 and Sundays at 2.30, so it's uh, only 15 shows, Then it will be all over, so it's a unique opportunity <laughs> to see it. <laughs>
0: Well, I thank you for coming down. You managed to get in here. I'm heading off on vacation. We did like three shows in advance, and I was so glad to hear about your show and be able to get you in really quick before I head off on vacation it sounds like a fascinating production. And thank you for coming down right before the holidays and talking about the show with our listeners.
2: Thanks for having me. Right after
0: I finished recording this, Veet called me to remind me that he forgot to mention that the music was by Frank London of the Hungry March Band. So that suited the music for Once There Was a Village. Back in episode 12, we talked with playwright Dan O'Brien about his off-Broadway play, Voyage of the Carcass. And we wanted to bring him back to talk a little bit more about his playwriting career in general. So how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. So one of the first things I want to talk about, obviously, is the fact that you know, you know actually seem to be focusing on theater, stage, and playwriting for your career when so many writers seem to be fleeing as much as possible to television and film. Was that a conscious choice?
1: Yeah, it, it has been a conscious choice. I think it's been... Um also just an awareness that that's what I enjoy the most so far, what I'm probably best at so far. I, wanting to live in New York also, there just aren't as many TV jobs in New York. And so part of it has just been me being realistic with myself in terms of what I think I, I would enjoy. I love working alone. I love in the beginning. I love I love being able to choose my own projects. You know, I mean it's sort of – I've been very conscious – you know, for the last seven or eight years about the fact that I I get to choose exactly what I want to write. But that means that very few people are paying me to write it. (laughs) You pretty much have to write everything on spec. Occasionally, you'll get commissions from theaters, and, and it's not a huge amount of money, but it'll get you started. And then hoping that months or years, sometimes down the line, the play will be produced. But that just fits my personality and my, my talent. I think it's a few things I've done, a, f- a few things for hire, and I'm just I admire people who can really write well, for hire. I'm not I'm not yeah, very speaking good at
0: that. of that. When you do get your commissions for mm-hmm. a
1: play, how much? When a when a company commissions you, how much control
0: do they expect to have over the final output?
1: It, it depends on the commission. I mean, my experience has been that most of the commissions given to young playwrights is more of a general sort of support, symbolic support for you as a young writer. So often it'll it'll be become because they, they like your writing, they've read or seen other plays of yours, and they want to support you as a writer and develop a relationship with you. But it often it'll be as general as, we really like you, here's a commission, write what you want to write. Or, or tell me what you're working on. Oh, I really like that. Here's a commission, that sort of thing. Occasionally, there's a play I'm writing right now for Jiva Theater Center in Rochester. That was an idea that we kind of cooked up together. We just found uh, myself and Marge Bentley, the dramaturg, and Mark Cuddy, the artistic director. We just found that we all actually had this fascination with a certain historical story. And so that kind of came about serendipitously. So sometimes there's more of an assignment. But even then, you know, they've really given me... I've been working on that play for about a year now. and They've given me complete freedom at this point, at least. And we're getting into readings now, and, and then you do start to get a certain amount of feedback, and, and it becomes a bit more of a group collaboration. But at the beginning, it's really just left up to you.
0: Now, I, I do see it. In order to make a, your career as a writer, it does seem that you're very, very flexible and willing to go in a lot of different directions to make ends meet. Yeah, and
1: I, and I you know, if I didn't teach, also, I think... Every writer, I, playwright I know, usually is to make a living between teaching TV, screenwriting, and theater. You know, I don't really, I don't think I can think of anybody who's really just making a living purely as a playwright. So I've been teaching part-time since I moved to New York, different colleges, and I, I had a private playwriting workshop for several years, and, and at primary stages I've been doing a workshop for about a year now. So you can sort of piece things together that way, I think. And, and and I've just selfishly wanted to give as much time every day to writing. So everything else I've done has just been kind of the minimum to keep myself writing.
0: So as a teacher, what's one of the first things you tell aspiring playwrights?
1: Oh, jeez. I, I don't know. You know, just to write, well, this is a cliche, but it's sometimes people need help doing it, to write about what, what's dangerous, write about which you're disturbed by, even if it's a comedy, write <laughs> right about what matters to you. I've heard other playwrights say it. I think Romulus Lenny, I heard him once saying, write towards danger. Because often there's, we live in societies where we try to avoid danger and conflict as much as possible. So often I think bad writing comes from an impulse just to be liked or to soothe everybody. And there's a place for that, but I, I, that's not the writing I admire the most. So yeah, to really write about what scares you or what uh, fascinates you or obsesses you.
0: Yeah, and when we first talked, you kind of brought up it in your show that Voyage of the Carcass was a very fantastical play. It was very stylized, and Mm -hmm. you started getting into what is natural styles of theater. And to me, the discussion is, I think, like I said, it's all forced. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the best areas to see it, unfortunately, on stage, is film. Acting styles in films date constantly, and what seemed natural to us, you know, in a film ten years ago, we'll watch a film now and go... It's odd.
1: Right. So
0: how do how do you like approaching playing with the acting styles and the naturalism
1: in your work? I I don't know. I mean I, I think you can't get too hung up on as a writer whether or not what you're writing is realistic or not realistic. I think you have to rely on that gut instinct feeling of, is this true? Is this real in a kind of emotional sense? Because part of what we enjoy about stories, I think, is is the way in which stories are not an immediate reflection of life. There's there's an art involved, so there's a kind of a twisting or something, so that it's simultaneously real and meaningful in, in its essence, but its expression is is personalized or is imagined. So I don't necessarily worry myself too much about that. I think each play, hopefully what it's about sort of calls for a certain style and a certain voice, you know. So certain of my plays I think do fit into a more sort of naturalistic box and other plays of mine fit into a much more stylized or theatricalized World, but I try not to really consciously make decisions about that with each play.
0: At what point in your writing of plays do you like to start bringing actors into the picture? You
1: know, it, it's usually about anywhere from six months to a year after after I start it. Sometimes shorter, even. It, it, it's that period where you've. I feel like. I'm done with f- a first draft, and it's—you know, I know it's not done. It's going to be months or years till it's done, but it feels like I've kind of done everything I want to do alone. Like, it feels feels like the major structure, the characters, everything's basically there, and I just want to start getting other people's input so that I can acquire all of these subtleties and exacting moments and that, that actors and directors bring to it. So, you know, it's really after that first draft when you know it's not done, but you you either don't know what else to change yet— or you don't want to do it alone anymore. <laughs> because that's what I love about the theater. If I didn't love, it's hard sometimes, but if I didn't love collaboration, I would write novels. I mean, that's still some collaboration, but there's just so much collaboration in the theater. You really have to love what that, how that enriches what you're writing rather than how it limits it.
0: Have you ever worked with a director or a producer that you've really had to come to heads with? You can or don't have to name names. <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> No, not really. I haven't had any nightmare experiences. I think there, there have been all kinds of gradations of, uh, well, it's like dating or something. You know, sometimes you, it's, it's infatuation to love, and sometimes you just sort of part as friends, and and that's... That's happened more often. And and just like in The Voyage of the Carcass, there's a lot of humor about what happens in the rehearsal room, you know, where people lose their temper or get too entwined with other, other performers. So, you know, I've, I've had that experience sometimes. But I think I've been pretty lucky so far. And when we turn off the microphone, I'll tell you the truth.
0: <laughs> so. And I understand that you do not like reading reviews, is it?
1: I don't, do. I used to. And I just... Uh, It just became not worth the trouble (laughs) because you'd spend days or weeks or sometimes even months sort of trying to figure out why somebody liked this or why somebody disliked that or why somebody wants to sum you up as a writer this way and somebody else wants to sum you up that way. And with my sort of obsessive way of thinking, I could waste a lot of time <laughs> doing that. So part of it is just to protect myself from what I think sometimes are, you know, careless or uh, just sort of offensive reviews. But it's also just to protect myself from losing what I really care about, which is working on the next play. I mean, I'm working on a play right now, so I don't want to spend all this time reading reviews of Voyage of the Carcass. I do find out, because you can't really avoid it, which which reviews are generally good or generally bad. And, and I think that's fine, because it's you can't really live in a bubble, you know. But I um, just want to protect myself. When I was in grad school, I worked with Charles Mee, the playwright, and I got my first review in the Boston Globe at that time. And it was, it was a really terrible review. <laughs> it was the first sort of major review I'd, I'd read. And it upset me, and I, I mentioned it to him. And he said, so he why, said, why do you read reviews? And that was shocking to me that a writer would say well, would ask really why would you read him and, and I said well don't why don't you don't read reviews and he said no he goes they don't they don't know what I'm doing they don't understand what I'm doing and I just loved that hey I love that bravado you know <laughs> <laughs> screw them but it was also the sense of they don't know I mean they're checking in from their own perspective on one piece of writing they don't understand necessarily and they don't have to or shouldn't understand where it's coming from. Yeah, in the bigger picture, and it said to me what I try to live now—that idea that it's a, as a writer, it's about the work even more so than the quote-unquote reception. It's nice if it's received well, and it's disappointing if it's not. But I think you no know, writing is what makes me happy. It's not critics.
0: And on a closing note. For aspiring playwrights out there, we got the creative advice from you, but on a business end, if they actually want to somehow ever earn money at this, what would be some tips for them to follow?
1: Uh, You know, I think it's another cliche, but I feel like if if you just keep doing it as much as you can, writing as much as you can. You're are gonna contests find
0: contests worthwhile, submitting to those things? Uh, yeah, and, to... and
1: I tell my students all the time to submit to everything. Cast as wide a net as you possibly can in the beginning because you just want to meet people. And sometimes you know, a crazy, weird little festival in the middle of nowhere, you'll meet somebody, an actor, director, somebody who, who you'll uh, want to work with and you'll end up working with. So it's all worthwhile as long as you can afford the postage You know, <laughs> to yeah. send things out. Don't send scripts to contests that charge you 50 bucks a pop but yeah just to really get get your work out there and to to really do what young people are good at which is to be ambitious and arrogant and ignorant maybe (laughs) you know but to really bulldoze through
0: i've always said i think there has to be almost a healthy a healthy amount of self-delusion in an artist i think so otherwise way through the waters
1: why would you keep doing (laughs) it it's absolutely right
0: all right well thanks so much for coming in and talking with us some more dan thanks Okay, good luck with everything else. Thank you. And your next play, whenever it's coming up, let us know about it.
1: Cool, thanks.
0: Marty Cooper has seen and met just about everybody in his 25 years working in the heart of Times Square at the Colony. And he likes just about everything, which is why we call his weekly segment On the Positive Side.
7: Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the Positive Side. And this is our last podcast. We're taking a four week hiatus. You people that are. Hungry for my few moments on this show, you'll have to listen to some of the old ones. And we'll be back online February the 8th. Since it's the last podcast of 2006, I'm going to give my wish list for 2007. Some of the things we know are coming. In the fall, I believe we'll have Trevor Nunn's production of Porgy and Bess. In the spring, we have the long-awaited Pirate Queen. Hope it's not a disaster, because if it was a disaster, it would be a huge disaster. I think it's like a $20 million show. We have Legally Blonde coming. I've heard the opening number. It sounds promising. Actually, the opening number sounds an awful lot like the opening number of Hairspray. Similar ditzy teenagers singing. So uh, it's going to sound like that. It sounds pretty good, actually. Lawrence O'Keefe, who gave us uh, Bat Boy, has given us this show. And I hope it fills the Palace Theater. I know the dogs are cast. (laughs) I hope they bring Elton John's Billy Elliot here sooner than they say. Because I think Broadway's ready for it. They should have tweaked it and Americanized it enough. It's supposed to be here fall of 2008. Maybe they'll push it up a little bit. What I don't want to see is another jukebox musical. We've had enough of those. See, to my mind, the best jukebox musical was the first, Mamma Mia!, They should have stopped there because the genre is getting pretty ill in my estimation. I don't want to see another orchestra on stage playing actors. I don't want to see that. That's on my wish list of don'ts. This is on my wish list after seeing the movie. Why don't they put Dreamgirls back on stage? do the old Michael Bennett production with that fantastic staging. If they put Dreamgirls back on Broadway, they'd have to bring Jennifer Hudson into the show as she was great in the movie. People, I think, would swarm to see her live on stage. Encores is doing Follies again this February. I'd love to see them transfer that back to Broadway. They tried Follies on Broadway a few years ago unsuccessfully, but you put Victoria Clark and Donna Murphy and Victor Garber on the same stage, and you're gonna have a winner, I believe. If it works out at Encores, put it back on Broadway. It's never succeeded on Broadway. The original was a failure. The revival was a failure. Try it again. One of the things I've always said over the last few years, and would be top on my wish list for 2007 once again, we need chess on stage and people at Disney. Watch the movie Newsies again and see the possibilities. Don't put high school musical on stage. Put Newsies on stage. Get a bunch of young fellows, dancing, singing young fellows, put them on stage, and believe me, it has a following. One of the top things on my wish list is I'd love to see a 20-or-more-piece orchestra. Your producers are charging $111 you can afford it. Certainly a show like Jersey Boys, which doesn't have much of a set, doesn't have any real names, can afford to charge less than $111. I go to London a lot. And when a show is run a little bit of time, they lower the price, which they never do here. Phantom has been running for almost 20 years and it's gone up and up and up every year. They've made their money back a long time ago. So that's on my wish list too lower prices, get more people in the theater, get more kids into the theater, teach them what real live theater is about. I mean, if families take their kids to the theater and kids are not charged less, it can turn out to be a thousand dollar night by the time you've parked your car, eaten in the Olive Garden, it's a thousand dollar night. Lower prices, bigger orchestras, those are really tops on my wish list. So until 2007, once again, this is Marty Cooper on the Positive Side.
0: On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony. Online at ColonyMusic.com or in the heart of Times Square at 49th and Broadway, you can always say, I found it at The Colony. I'm talking with Keith Bindlestiff, one of the founding members of the Bindlestiff Family Circus, for something a little bit different. Hi, how you doing? Good. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about the history
6: of the Bindlestiff Family Circus. Circus goes back to the 1700s, um, 1800s in the United States. Bindlestiff basically grew out of the New York underground in the early to mid-90s, 94, 95. Um, we started as a small variety show um, at a place called the Charleston Bar and Grill in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It was a free show, kind of an open mic you know, Anybody that felt like performing could join our stage. We had hula hoop artists, jugglers, drag queens, clowns, kind of the full gamut of variety arts. And it was a really free-form place for people to you know, create new stuff, work on new stuff. And from there, um, we've grown into a bit more of a polished, I would say, vaudeville-type show. What kind of acts do you include in the circus? Bindelstead Family Circus includes just about every type of act you can imagine. Um, we do everything from kids shows to adult shows, um, sword swallowing, fire eating, aerial acts. Um, we've had clowns from Ringling Brothers and Cirque du Soleil work with us. Everything in the sideshow realm, everything in the circus realm, a bit of burlesque. You know, it's a true variety show. Every um, Right now we're doing a show in Brooklyn where it, um, every Friday is a totally different lineup, so you... Really don't know what you're going to see until you get there.
0: And what about your beginnings? How did you become a circus performer?
6: It goes back to when I was a small kid. I was in... Um, Advance North Carolina, my parents took me to Moxville to see a little mud show Mexican circus. A mud show circus is a tented show that moves every single day, putting up the tent, do one, two, three shows, take down the tent, drive all night, set up, do another show, and they went on like that. But at this particular mud show, they had the elephant dog. For 25 cents, you could see the elephant dog. I paid my 25 cents, went behind the wall, and there was a shaved dog thus the elephant dog. And the moment that I learned that you could shave a dog and make 25 cents out of it, I knew that show business was my calling. But then many years passed, and when I was at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, I learned how to juggle for my next-door neighbor. And then soon after that, I met a group of jugglers, traded a bottle of whiskey for a fire-eating lesson, and learned, I would say, the two marketable skills that I picked up while I was in college. For the curious out there... How exactly do you eat fire? Very carefully. (laughs) Well, yes. Um, Every fire eater that I know that does it professionally has had at least one major burn. You learn quite a lot the moment that you see your face engulfed in flames, and you realize you never want to do that again. It's toxic, and it's one of those things you either get it right or you don't. You mentioned before we started the interview that uh, before you started the circus, your fire eating
0: took you to a very interesting place.
6: It did. I um, Before I graduated from college, I came to New York for an internship with Autonomy Media, which is a radical book publishing collective based out of Brooklyn. So that kind of gave me my first ties to New York. I went back to college, graduated, and then moved in with the book publishing collective trading work for rent. And then I started waiting tables and Soon after that, I got a job as a fire eater in a strip club. And the moment that that happened, I realized that you could make a living eating fire and hanging out in a strip club. And that was really the end of it for me. So how does one go about becoming a member of the Bindlestiff Family Circus? I would say the best way for folks to- to become a part of Bindlestiff, at times we run what's called Lily Lipid's Open Stage Cabaret, which is an open mic setup made for variety entertainers. Around New York, you can find a number of variety or open mics that are for, say, stand-up comedians or musicians. But few people make sure that there's venues for jugglers and aerialists to be able to to work out and show us their stuff. So Lily Lipid has always been a place for us to see new acts in the development of acts, and a number of those have eventually joined our show um, at ver- you know various degrees. We get a number of videos sent in to us, out of which every now and then we book off of just straight-off video, but I would say, especially if somebody's going to tour with us or be a part of a major production, we need to spend a few weeks with them making sure that they're roadworthy, that we're compatible, um, that you know they won't freak out three weeks in, and just that they get along with everybody. So, it's kind of a, a development process where we may see, we'll see their work in the beginning, and then we'll invite them to be a part of the few variety shows that we're doing around New York so we can kind of see you know how they work in a crew and a cast and just with the production. Then when we have a need, we may invite them to jump in the van and hit the road.
0: What's one of the more
6: interesting acts
0: you've had in
6: the circus? Um, we've had a few New York legends. One, Scotty the Blue Bunny, who is quite famous, I would say, in the New York underground and club scene. He's a full-on character. He's eight feet tall with air, with his rabbit ears and platform um, shoes, skin-tight, blue body outfits, and full-on character. You can't really define what Scotty does, but he will knock you over with his charisma. The Lily lipids open mic always had some big oddballs who I would say ne- didn't necessarily... Join the troupe, but they would be there every single week to do their act. One of which is Eugene Calamari, the human doormat. This is a man who would wear a doormat on his front and back. He would lay on the floor, have women stepping on his face and vacuuming him. He considered that was his act. Um, we never booked him and hired him for travels, but he was always a fancy flavor for the the open stage. Tonight, we have Ravi, the Scorpion mystic, who's a contortionist that can cram his body into a 16 by 16 by 16 inch box. Um, He can twist his um, hand so his fingers touch the back of his arm. He can push his whole hand backwards into a pint of like a pint glass for beer. We've had some amazing body benders over the years work with us. Wait, that's... Just a little bit over a foot square. I'm trying to... uh... It's amazing. We actually also had Daniel the Rubber Boy, who many people may have seen on the Discovery Channel, on many different major networks. Um, He joined us because we were playing in Pensacola, Florida, the Redneck Riviera, as they call it. And the scrappy little punky kid came up and said, hey, can I do a minute or two in your show tonight? And we said, sure. Sure. He got up there and did some of the most jaw-dropping, contorting positions that we have ever seen. And then the next day we were in New Orleans, he had given away all his belongings, his apartment, everything, and was basically standing there saying, you have to take me. I have nothing else to go back to now. He jumped in the van, did that tour with us. I got him a job working on a carnival midway which um, at a sideshow where we were doing 30 to 50 shows a day. So he went from the Bindlestiff van to working the sideshow at a carnival, which I would venture to say is the hardest job you'll ever have in showbiz for the least amount of pay. And from there, he met some amazing agents and now works Hollywood, Vegas. Um, you know, he's making, you know, at times thousands of dollars a day. All from his beginnings with you guys, huh? Exactly. So you guys run a cavalcade of youth? We do. Um, The Cavalcade of Youth is a program that we started approximately three years ago, and it is designed for acts um, and performers under the age of 20. It's, again, a variety show format, and we get some of, I would say, the best up-and-coming jugglers, magicians, Chinese acrobats, um, clowns, in some cases kids trying to stage for the first time. You know, they've been practicing juggling or hula-hooping for years, but had never had the stage experience, and we've helped to try to take the skills that the, the children have and develop it into, you know, a stage-worthy act. And I would venture to say in the next few years, you're going to see many of our cavalcade of youth kids working at Ringling, working at Cirque du Soleil, um, working at the theme parks, you know, around the country, basically doing all the different venues that you see variety acts in. And
0: this isn't just a hand-holding fun day for children. You're actually teaching them how to make money being performers.
6: Unlike many other children, um, kid programs out there, there's many kid programs that parents pay hundreds and thousands of dollars for their kids to take part in being in a circus or learning circus and theater skills, we have developed it so they pass a the hat at the end of the show. They split that hat. They're not getting a lot, generally speaking, but you know, twenty, thirty dollars for their first payment of ever being on a stage. But teaching them that being a variety entertainer and being in show business is exactly that—you are in a business—and making sure that you do get some compensation for what you do is just as crucial as wowing the audience. Now, it seems to me in the past few years
0: that there's really been a a revival in the interest around burlesque and vaudeville and circus performers. Uh, What I'm wondering is, is this really something that's been around the whole time and it's just now that we're starting to see it again? Or is it really something new that a lot of actors or different performers are wanting to get into different aspects of performance.
6: I would say over the past 100 years you've seen a few different waves of vaudeville, burlesque, variety having kind of its heyday. Um in the 80s this was the era of what they called neo-vaudeville. This is where we ca- saw the folks that like Bill Irwin coming out, Penn and Teller of kind of of that generation. And then for a- after that for a while it it kind of ebbed a bit and I would say Mid-90s, you saw an increase once again in an in interest in circus, sideshow, vaudeville. This was the era of Jim Rose, who basically brought sideshow back into the American vernacular. You start to see a lot of small circuses, you know, community circuses starting. And in the past three to six years, especially in New York, L.A., San Francisco, burlesque has been something that, you know, now just about every single bar in New York has a night of burlesque, for better or for worse, um... I mean, the problem with some of this growth is 10 years ago you could make, you know, $100 just to go do a quick act in a cabaret show. But due to the fact there's now so many different shows out there, at times you're lucky to make $20 for, you know, making it out. Like, can't even pay your car fare to get to the gig and back.
0: Well— now, you know, the reaction of the fans at your show really reminded me more of how fans would act at a, a rock concert.
6: Our, our first tours uh, as Bindlestiff w- was pretty much in the, I guess, rock and roll venues. We had a few magazines that helped us define our first tours. Book Your Own Fucking Tour, Book Your Own Life, out of like ma- Maximum Rock and Roll. One of them was out of Billboard Publications. these were kind of um, DIY do-it-yourself touring resources. And all of our venues in the beginning were rock venues. And we had to learn how to take a drunk audience and get them to enjoy circus, you know, jugglers and sword swallowing. And live music's always been a crucial element of Bindlestiff. We've always made sure that we've had, you know, live musicians backing us up. But I think because of that nature, we learned very early on how to deal with a rowdy audience. You'll see the same kind of perspective coming from the folks who worked the early era of burlesque. You know, if you could work that stage, you could work any stage. You got your chops there. Same with street performing. So we've always kind of enjoyed that rowdiness, that intimacy with the audience. We ripped down the fourth wall, you know, long before we ever started. And you never know when a performer is going to be, you know, laying in your lap or you may be stuck on stage. You know, we've really tried to create that connection with our audience and make it a live experience that they are just as much a part of as we are. And I think that's kind of helped create our fan base and create the vibe or the energy that Bindlestiff continues to be able to have at all of our shows. Do you have any particularly memorable audience stories? Um, we were doing, in the mid-90s, piercing act. It was This was kind of a period where AIDS was, you know, very much at the forefront of people's thought. Heroin was once again becoming in vogue. And piercing acts were, you know, a dime a dozen with this total seriousness of flesh hangings from ceilings. And we decided to take it on and find the humor in a piercing act and create it as a clown piece. We were performing it in Philadelphia, and there was this fella in the audience who just recently got it out of the penitentiary. And I guess had, you know, had a few friends in the pen O.D. and, you know, had some major issues and memories that came up whenever he saw Needle. And he kind of had this flashback, stood up, and basically wanted to kill us. Luckily, he never made it to the stage that night, um, but it's definitely a memory that will always be with me of just seeing in a sense the power of performance you know we are there at times you know digging deep into people's psyche and you never know what's going to come out of that and that's part of the beauty of what we do so does juggling or fire eating ever help you pick up women in bars i would say that circus skills and sideshow skills are great you know starter lines you will generally speaking never have to pay for a drink if you can take, you know, six or seven cocktail straws and shove them up all the way into your head and in into your nose, you're sat on drinks for the rest of the night. And many people think that the ladies don't like juggling, but I would venture to say that um it it can t- turn the folks on. Yeah, so uh,
0: I guess uh, I'll take a, have to take that advice. Learn to juggle, get some dates <laughs> for anybody out there. I had a friend that that certainly worked for. So, where do you see Bindlestiff going in the future?
6: Um, for two years, we were on 42nd Street with the help of Shashama, who's, in my mind, one of the most supportive art institutions in all of New York that's helped the underground theater movement. And they gave us a space grant to operate our own dime Museum and Vaudeville House, I'd venture to say the last Vaudeville House in Times Square, until Bank of America decided that they wanted to build a skyscraper there and knock down the theater and built the skyscraper. But during that era, we had a you know permanent facility in New York for a variety of entertainers to not only practice but to perform, develop their own productions. We were in our first year presenting eight Bindlestiff Stiff shows a day as kind of continuous vaudeville that you could walk in at any point and see the show. We also produced over two dozen other people's, you know, variety-based productions, and it really became, you know, a community nexus for variety, and we hope to, once again, you know, bring that sort of facility back to the city. It's, in my mind, a very sad statement that here in a city where really you could see the birth of burlesque, vaudeville, Barnum's American Museum, um, that there's really no major institution helping develop this level of art that grew out of New York from its earliest period. San Francisco has a circus school. You know, L.A. has some amazing programs. New York, you have a few teachers, but there's really no major facility that is there for aerialists, jugglers, clowns, you know, and making it affordable for them to develop.
0: Would you like to tell us your website? Any other information, how people can find out what's going on with Bindlestiff?
6: You can find out what Bindlestiff's doing at www.bindlestiff.org. That's B-I-N-D-L-E-S-T-I-F-F dot And that'll keep you up to date on all of our happenings in New York, all of our happenings around the country. Beyond that, you can also call 1-877-B-I-N-D-L-E-S toll-free um, to also get those updates.
0: Well, thank you for coming down and talking with Broadway Bullet. Absolutely. My pleasure. Again, uh, we're looking for a little bit more involvement with our listeners, if at all possible. Please take a moment, go to broadwaybullet.com, fill out our listener survey. Uh, if you feel so generous, we could really use a little bit of help if you could donate something to us. We're not a nonprofit yet, but everything's greatly appreciated. We have quite a few expenses and really no income yet. <laughs> going broke fast. Um, we also, in that vein, I'm a one-man band here, kind of, so to speak, booking the interviews, editing them, putting the show together, promoting, a bit of everything. Uh, we really could use any help from you if you want to get involved and pitch in. There's plenty of things to do. Uh, there's plenty of things you can do if you want to do it. Think of it. The sky's the limit. You can probably do what you want to do. So... Remember, just like a lot of theater, this show is definitely a community effort. I'd like to know what you think. So uh, fill out the survey, donate if you can, pitch in if you can. Be fantastic. You can email me with any ideas or what you're interested in doing at broadwaybullet at com. This will be the last song we play for the season, and... It's uh, one of my favorite songs that I've discovered from a show since starting this program. And so I think it's only fitting to close with this thought leading out. I think it's an important thing for anybody of an artistic persuasion to uh, hold dear. The song is called Die, Vampire, Die. From the musical title of show, which came out of the New York Musical Theater Festival, uh, second season. There are
3: some people in the world who say that writing stories or composing music or dancing sparkly dances is easy for them. Nothing interferes with their ability to create. While I celebrate their creative freedom, a little part of me wants to punch those motherfuckers in the teeth. This song, I sing this song for you guys and for all the rest of us. Help me out, y'all. We'll sing back up. You have a story to tell, a novel you keep in a drawer. Old sock drawer. You have a painting to paint, but you're lazy like an old French whore. Just we whore. You have a movie to make, shrinky dinks you can bake, but you best grab a steak. calls in sweep the vampires in, creep the vampires knee deep in vampires filling. With doubt, insecurity about what your art should be in. So weep the vampires, die, vampire. You sketched that turtle you saw in an ad on late night cable TV. Tippy Turtle! But your fourth grade teacher said, You can't draw. All oh, those vampires won't let you be. Fuck you, Miss Johnson. Word. And when they come, run like hell. See those bats in your belfry, then call on Van Helsing. In swoosh. In a Ooh, whoosh. Vampires. whoosh. Baba Sadoosh. All the vampires. believe Philly- with thoughts of self-consciousness, feelings of worthlessness, they'll make you second-guess Die Vampire! There are so many vampires inside, outside, and nationwide. It helps to recognize them with this vampire. Listen closely, a vampire is any person or thought or feeling that stands between you and your creative self-expression, but they can assume many seductive forms. Here's a few of them. Tell us,
1: Susan!
3: First up are your pygmy vampires. They'll swarm around your head like gnats and say things like... Your
6: teeth need whitening.
3: You went to state school. You sound weird. Shakespeare. Sondheim. And Sedaris. Did it before you and better than you. Or they might say that you cannot sing good enough to be in a musical. Or they might say, Who are your songs derivative? Who are your songs derivative? Who, are your, song's derivative? Who are your songs derivative? To keep ooh, that ooh, song ooh, from ooh, you, you chichiro. Die, vampire, die. Brothers and sisters, Next up is the air freshener vampire. She might look like your mama or your old fat-ass, fat aunt Fanny. If she smells something unpleasant in what you're creating she'll urge you to it with some pine fresh smell em ups the air freshener vampire doesn't want you to write about bad
6: language blood
3: or blowjobs. she wants you to clean it up and clean it out which will leave your work toothless gutless and crotchless but you'll be left with two tight paragraphs on kittens that your grandma would be so proud of You look at that air freshener vampire and her fat ass, fat old fucking face, and you say. The last vampire is the mother of all vampires, and that is the vampire of despair. It'll wake you up at 4 a.m. to say things like.
1: Who do you think you're kidding? You look like a fool.
7: No matter
8: how hard you try, you'll never be good enough.
3: Why is it if some dude walked up to me on the subway platform and said these things, I would think he was a mentally ill asshole. But if the vampire inside my head says it, it's the voice of reason. You have a story to tell. Pull your novel out of that sock drawer. You have to paint you best paint it and then pay some more oh baby you must escape then grab it by the nape of its neck by the trachea fucking break it go on, drive the stake, and yeah there's no mistake and now you're shaking bacon die vampire i said die vampire i said now die vampire die Your art should be out. Go the vampires, die vampire, die vampire, die vampire,
0: die. Vampire, die. Title of the show is available on Shickaboom Records at shickaboom.com. That's sh k b o o m.com. We're continuing our discussion with Casey Hushin, John Simpkins, Daniel Goldstein, and Chris Catelli about forging a career in directing. Last week we talked more about the business end of kind of cracking through the things and this time we're gonna get into a little bit more of the ephemeral discussions of the creative end of what goes into this career in directing. And just the first question I'll put out, which probably can get into a bit of a discussion, is when you're working on a new play, how much input do you actually get into the script? And I'm sure that varies in different situations. A lot.
4: I mean, I, I in my work, it's a, a lot. I don't know, do you guys do a lot of plays? Because I, I, I think you know. it's different, depending on, not one. Ever. Not yet. No. <laughs> Okay. So, uh, well, I just finished, literally, uh, this week, I spent a week every day with the playwright of this new play at The Signature in D.C. called Nest by a a playwright named Bathsheba Doran, who's uh, just finished Great Expectations with Kathleen Mm. Chalfonte at at the Lortel, and we spent a week going through the script from top to bottom and really pushing through it. I acted as the dramaturg asking a million questions and really saying, I, I don't understand what this person is saying here, or this whole scene seems to be off topic, or what are you trying to get at with this, or this revelation comes too easily, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that's when it's really fun for me, mm-hmm. especially when you're working with a new piece. And with, but I'm a cheerleader at the, at the Nymph. You know, we went through two major rewrites of the script before we started rehearsal, and then even within rehearsal, I mean, we rewrote the whole thing. We put scenes to, you know, there were all these therapy scenes, and we made it into one giant one. We put dialogue in the middle of songs. We cut songs. I made them write new verses. I made them write a new song. You know, there's a lot of input, I think. That's the fun part. That's, I mean, working with the dead playwrights or the shows that have already been up, it's not as much fun because you don't get to ask. There were so many, doing falsettos, I wanted to ask Bill Finn so many questions. Like, what does this lyric mean? And... You can't, because it's already published. It's on. Mm -hmm. It's done.
9: Yeah, I think it's true with the sort of resurgence of new works over the past few years. There's been, like, this big boom in promoting all these new works and the festivals and this and that. And I think everyone is looking for a really strong director in these new works with a good dramaturgical sense to come in and sort of help shape all these new works that are out there. So I think they, they tend to want more input, you know, in all cases rather than less about, you know, as far as... The bookwork and, pl- and structure and placement of songs and tone and this and that, it's, it's been a, a real open door in my experience. Mm-hmm.
8: Same here, and it, it depends on when you enter the process, but especially for the festivals where, where they're sort of out shopping for directors and you're out sort of hoping to, to get one if you like directing in those festivals. Uh, that first meeting becomes essential to figure out what, what it is that they're going to want and what it is that they're looking for. And if you're a director who happens to have a dramaturgical interest, which I am, then. Then you want to find those people who are going to be open to allowing somebody onto the team to help shape their
5: shape their piece with.
0: Them. I saw a lot of silent face cringes on the. If you like working in these.
9: Festivals. <laughs> <laughs> That's why
0: they were
1: silent.
9: <laughs> 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 no, we're just laughing because we've all had very <laughs> festival experiences. That's
4: experiences. Yep. <laughs> oh, festivals. <laughs>
9: <laughs> I mean it's just a lot of different and you end up doing you have to be on board when you do one of those things to to really, you know, do whatever's required of you know, with the shows. We used to laugh, there was a show I did in the Nymph Festival and the Nymph is a great organization. they they're doing amazing things. But um, I was with some of the staff, like, at 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> sweeping, you know, we're, like, oh, sweeping yeah. tocitos up <laughs> on the stage and cleaning the backstage area, and we're like, what are we doing? Well, you do what it takes to sort of get the Switching show
5: Switching out gels.
9: Truly. <laughs> you yeah. know, sitting on
5: ladders at, like, 29 after, Truly. you know, totally. right before half hour, and
9: which yeah. what makes it sort of fun too. It's a big. There's a spirit of community, and everyone's just yeah. doing what it takes to get the show up together. And but... then you
4: sleep for like three weeks. Yeah,
9: <laughs> <laughs> but we all like exchange those looks because we've all got stories <laughs> of you know what you've done to get one of those shows up in a loving way. I think <laughs> yes. <laughs> on
0: a on a flip to some of their answers, I know for instance that you just put up How to Save the World in 90 Minutes, which you didn't come in at the very beginning. They brought you in when it, they knew it was going to off Broadway. So in that kind of scenario, do you still have some sort of input into the writing? Are they still looking for that? They were definitely looking for it, and we, we actually changed a lot of the script around
5: because it was it was a little one-dimensional, and we helped, I like to think that we helped get into the characters' psyches a bit more and, and, and actually have the, the play be about something rather than just a shticky play. So, And I, they were very open, and even t- still today, we're still, like I said, we're still changing things and doing rewrites, and he's keeps sending me pages, and they couldn't have been more collaborative. So that was
4: a wonderful experience.
0: Now, how often have any of you championed a new play or musical, tried to really help Spearhead getting it on somewhere?
4: Yeah, that's a tricky question. I mean, yeah. it, it's happened, sometimes they've gone on to good things and sometimes paths
0: have crossed. I mean, nothing that I've really championed has become a... Well, I don't mean it has to be a hit. I sure. just mean, have you guys run across a play, a sure. playwright, where there's no production scheduled yet and you've kind of taken it upon yourselves to try to help get it a production and you directing it somewhere I have sure.
4: they've not necessarily resulted in my directing them <laughs> 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 Good time give me a bourbon and we'll talk about that next week yeah <laughs> No. Yeah, but um, but yeah. I mean, that's that's the hope is that you meet. I mean, I love meeting new new writers and reading their stuff. You know, hoping that one of their pieces becomes the next whatever.
5: Yeah, I actually had an interesting conversation with a gentleman from MTI, who after he saw Silence, he we had a little luncheon meeting, and we were sitting at lunch, and he said, "So, if there's, what's your dream project? What 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 show would you just die to get your hands on?" And, and it's tricky because most of the shows that I would like to do have such a huge stamp on them mm-hmm. that there's, yeah. I mean, and that's why I love them because it's more like of, they
0: you wish you had done them exactly right? I had done them. <laughs> so you know because there's certain
5: things you don't want to see changed. But um, and I said well actually it, my dream project hasn't been done and uh, I brought up Emmett Otter's Drug Band Christmas. It's a Christmas oh, movie that's that. that's been done and he said really I said yeah I said he said well it the DVD is sitting on my desk and I have no idea what to do with it. And I said well, you have to watch it because it's my favorite Christmas movie ever, et cetera, which turned into, he put it in, he contacted wow. the people and now we're slated to go oh, for
4: you.
6: next holiday.
5: Like, we, we have, I've had meetings with the Henson, so it's the Henson's first musical ever and, so and, good. I, it's That's my favorite great. ever, and so it, it was one of those fate things. Just, just yeah. oh, don't get me started. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I just you
4: know. I'll
3: send you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's
5: exciting. So, but it but it was one of those things where I, that that simple. I just tossed it off, and fate led to fate, and met with Paul Williams, and met with this one, and then cut to next Christmas. It's so that was really wow, exciting.
0: Was How often when directing and under schedules do you find the need to balance efficiency with creativity? Always. 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 Um, that's, that's, always. The, that's part of the job, I that's think. It. I mean,
9: There is sort of like an old myth that I think sometimes there's an assumption that creativity and efficiency can't coexist. You know, the creativity is just wild and unbridled uh-huh. and then there's the paper-pushing side. But, yeah, but I think it's essential in, in what we do in being a good leader to be able to yeah, do a schedule and totally. make sense of technical things and at the same time have that complete creative outlet I mean we too. had five hours without.
4: to tech but I'm a cheerleader five hours to tech a two and a half hour twenty person musical we had two weeks of rehearsal oh no two weeks and two days because I begged <laughs> for Godspell <laughs> which is a show that we entirely made up how do you do that in two weeks and two days and sure. sometimes you just you have to do it you have yeah. to do it so you know my stage manager and I sat down on the first day, you know at the before and said said, okay so we're going to run act one on Friday of the first week and I said you're smoking
1: <laughs> Some
4: really crazy stuff right now. You know, it's funny though because it always,
5: somehow it always it always, and works it always works out. I mean, Maria, did a, a producer friend of mine. She always she, she says it takes as long as you have. It's sure. That's true. That's it true. Was, and I it always I live by that so now true. because I mean, high fidelity. We're still we were changing things to the last second, and and we're very happy with the pro, You know, with the outcome of everything. But you know, if we had two more months, we'd still keep making changes. That's and nice. so yeah. it's just you have as long as you have and. And I, I believe that a good yeah.
4: Point. When I used to do plays at the o- O'Neill, that Jim Houghton, when he was running, it, it was when I was there, and he, you know, you have four days to put up. It's a reading, but you, it's fully staged. Right. But so you put up a play in four days, and he would talk about that. You sort of go through like the normal four week rehearsal process in the four days. Like the mm-hmm. first day, everyone mm. loves everyone. Right. The second day, <laughs> <laughs> he's like the second day, everyone's a little timid. The third day, everyone hates everyone, and then the fourth day, everyone rallies back together yeah. and comes, you know, picks <laughs> totally. up the cause you know like. but it's like everything's abbreviated you figure it out in whatever time you have
9: it's true I did a production this year of Wizard of Oz in 10 days and it was like a tremendous production with flying and pyro and 30 children and like just every element you could two dogs it was just like a, a circus Chris referenced the circus <laughs> um, but 10 days two days to tech it you, you, yeah. and you just like go for it you just do it
4: it, it, it happens yeah. whatever it is and you compromise where you need to compromise, and you figure it out. You know, I think that the unsuccessful directors are the ones who refuse Thank to take into know. account the what you're doing with the, the resources you have. It must be this, and then you yeah. end up with a show yeah. that looks like you were focused on one element that yeah. you had to have there, because you're part of the deal nowadays when money is really tight. You don't get, we're not in Europe, you don't get six months, right. you know, you go to London, and they, they have two months to rehearse a play. Mm-hmm.
8: It also feels like a little bit of a balancing act in the room. You know, there. Just going back to what you said, Casey, about the, you know, some directors walk into the room and open the open the script and say, "Let's begin," Mm -hmm. and that's how you're supposed to now create something. And I think that, as directors, we ask we ask our cast, we ask actors to come in prepared but open to the room, per se. And I think that that's our job too. I think we need to come in prepared for, the the technical, for lack of a better word, aspect of that rehearsal process. How much time do I have? When don't I have the principles? <laughs> when mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, we have to be prepared enough and then open enough to the creativity in the room. So it is kind of a.
4: It's also amazing, like trying to get actors to you know be open when you're just like you know, and you're expected to stage the first twenty right. minutes yeah, and on the first throwing. day of rehearsal. You know, especially for Godspell, you know, I I my preference would have been to spend a week having nothing to do with the play and right. making them tell bad stand-up routines and play stupid theater games yeah. and bounce the ball. Right. So we, you know, I had to figure out a way to do that otherwise we actually instituted a really good policy which i would highly recommend for other productions <laughs> mm-hmm. which is we had a tv and vcr and dvd player and everyone had we started every day in rehearsal everyone had to bring in bad videotape of them in a show when they were a kid preferably in Godspell if they had been in it oh before so it started so every rehearsal day started with like telly in pippin oh my God. in brooklyn when he had like this thick brooklyn accent like, before he... <laughs> or um, Anika was in... What did Anika bring on? And, and Sarah Chase in a ba- bad, like, Jewish community center a chorus line. I was in Godspell as Jesus when I was 13, so I brought in that. Oh, <laughs> you
9: should see my By Your Side video. It will break yes. your heart. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send
4: it you. We're going to get together after this. Um, so, but, you know, you figure out fun ways of, of... You figure out how to work it.
0: Continuing on, on the flip end. Okay, we know that you take on stuff you feel passionate about, but what happens into the process when you find that you've got an actor or a creative team member that is just becoming completely incompatible with the project? How do you work around it, or how do you... Do you either get rid of them or work around it, or what's the...
9: Depends. I mean, usually getting rid of them ends up being more destructive than, than anything else, depending on what process you're in, what time it is, how far along it is, but... I think you just find a way to, to handle them as best you can. You know, you use your psychology yeah. <laughs> degree mm-hmm. and try and finesse it and smooth things out and keep it functioning. I don't know. Although
4: there have been times where I haven't fired someone when I really regret not having done it. Yeah. I've learned my lesson on that. I mean, who wants to fire anyone? But it's there, hard. there it's were, so the there, was, there was one on Mona Mia that I really regretted not, not firing and, or not replacing when the contracts were up. And right. on another show, too. I knew something was wrong and I didn't put my foot down and say, this is not going to work. And it wasn't necessarily an actor, you know, just a member of the staff. And I regret it. There's something to be said for the the directors who have reputations of being difficult. I don't, I'm not one of them, but sometimes I wish I were a little more difficult Mm -hmm. because I think the results are, you, you know, if it's not working.
1: Yeah.
8: I always try to, as a general rule, maintain the idea that if something's not working, then some, then I try to think what what I need to change in that scenario. Because I, I kind of think that in a room, it's my job to go and figure out where people are hiding and bring them, mm-hmm. <laughs> bring them to the room a little bit. And so I always I always think that when there's an incompatibility, incompatibility thing, that it's them hiding somewhere, and whether that's hiding behind uh, a, a fear based place or an anger based place, then I feel like. Okay, that's information
0: that I can use to
8: now sort of go find them a little. Sometimes it doesn't work, and you fire them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anybody have? You might have to hold back names, but anybody have any funny nightmare stories about a situation like this? That uh, 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 (laughs) 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 next week,
9: (laughs) nightmares, nightmares with directors next week. I mean, I've got dozens, but they're all sort of fun, too. They're not, like, none of them are torturous (laughs) stories. They're just like, can you kind of believe this happened stories. I've had the the actual good fortune to do a lot of shows regionally that are sort of star projects, where you do get a name attached from the beginning and says, okay, this is your lead for this show. And they're stars ranging from, you know, A to D list (laughs) in some circumstances. (laughs) And you can't imagine the adventures that come along with that in a 10-day process. You know, it's been unbelievable stories that I have but I may have to hold back because it will be very obvious what I'm talking about
4: but if you find me at a bar I'll tell you (laughs) I'll tell you all about it and we'll drink a vodka and coke because that was this person's favorite drink vodka and coke but everyone has to they build build character
0: definitely I believe this movement is kind of still going it was coming in there's been a movement for a while of some the Directors Guild trying to get you know some royalties in place for the directors as well when a show goes off beyond its original production into, into regional how does everybody feel about that as an idea are you for it are you against it are there reasons why is it ha- taking any hold yet in the way that
4: dramaturgical I mean I think it should be negotiated from the beginning yeah. and many directors do on new works that you do a lot of dramaturgical work and so that you have mm. a portion of the
0: writers royalties I mean I don't think that because I know a lot of community theaters, you know, there from the beginning. They're looking at that script they got from Samuel French, going, "Actor crosses stage left." Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, so what, <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. what they do.
5: <laughs> it gets tricky. I mean, even even down to to choreographic things. I mean, they for Alter Boys we were trying to i was trying to get royalties for subsequent productions because they were putting moves and blocking of mine in the script and i had to go through the script and they wouldn't give them to me and i had to go through the script and take out No, you can't add that they take these props out of a wooden box because i i did that like that's mine that what didn't come with the song i mean it, and it gets really it gets really sketchy totally. but um but you it's but you have to protect your work and it's it's a it's a fine line because in the room it's like Oh, the actor actually made up that line or this mm-hmm. so and sos you know the ASM sitting in the room shouted out, oh, that'd be really funny say that I mean, and it is a, such a collaborative process that the lines sometimes get blurred and but I think out of anyone I the director I feel should because at the end of the day it's his final word what is a, what is on that stage. So I, I feel that it is it is important that they do.
8: Totally, it, it especially if it's like a like you were saying, Chris, about it like a conceptual approach to a number, be it a director or a choreographer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's oh, that's mine. That's something you know. You look at like Evita. You look at how princes work in Evita. That's his, <laughs> and and I shouldn't be able to go rip that off unless
4: he lets me. Right, unless you pay for it. Unless mm-hmm. you unless you pay for it or get permission. But in terms of like guaranteed <laughs> rights for, to per, for a script, I mean. If, it's, if none of your work is in the script as you took it all out then we have no right to that script unless it's part of what the right unless you've had right. part of what the right the but writer should be sharing even
0: still I'm going to bet that there's a lot of directors around the country or just, you know smaller community groups who at some point have either now seen Alter Boys on, off Broadway when they came to their trip to New York and decided they wanted to put it on mm-hmm. or they've seen the tour that's starting around now and they're going to do the thing where they're pulling the stuff out of the box because really? <laughs> you know? yeah, it gets tricky, you
5: mm-hmm.
4: and there's mm-hmm. can't help it. I that's mean, gonna right, them. but that's community theater. I mean, mm-hmm. and it's not there's not a whole lot of money, so it's not right. like it's right. Do well I mean, it's-
0: when you get to the level of a certain play when there's 300 community theaters all putting on one production every year. I would think it adds up to a significant amount of money.
6: It's true, it's not there, each mean, individual
0: there's... show, may not, but when you got. Yeah every mm-hmm. community group and Alter Voice could very well turn into something that is very popular sure. with community sure. groups
5: yeah it, it's it's. All, I mean so, and or like Bat Boy like I hear I mean so and so did it at someone's high school or so and so you know and they all do the little bat hands in the mm-hmm. opening number and but there's nothing I can do about that. I mean, there's you know I'm not going to go to a high school and say, "How
4: dare you
9: put my little bad hands in?" Well, you this, some, some, this so is some 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 where I don't think you guys a should have to. It's, it. yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. kind of flattering yeah, to the, know that the yeah. things you did in high school when you were doing like white gloves and pippin. You know, right. it's really amazing <laughs> to know that there's high schools that are going to be doing like bad boy hands. But then there's the other extreme of losing you know your you know your whatever your investment is financially if it's if it gets exploited. Exactly. But right. you know that that seems like more of a flattering angle than yeah. you know exploitative.
0: Most of it, like, you Explo- know, John said it should be negotiated on a case-by-case basis, but this is why, I mean, I, I personally am for the movement, you know, yeah. that is trying to get it in. I don't think you guys should have to whine and complain and, and come across as, like, nitpickers, right. you know, in contract <laughs> negotiations on the thing. I do think there should be, like I said, maybe not everybody else, but like I said, at least boiling down to the director who has the ultimate say in the thing, that they're, there's, that has a lot of influence in a lot of future productions. You know, even if, even for the other companies who choose to go against it, it's still like... There's something in what it is done, and I think people, you It'd know, some some sort of union needs to get that negotiated yeah. so that you guys don't have to look like complainers. Yeah. Because it's not like it. you
5: want to complain or sound ungrateful that you're working on it or, or that you don't. It's just, you know, it's you're putting, you know, you're spearheading with that specific project, and, and you're putting, your life at that time is that project. Yeah. And, and it's just nice to at least feel respected enough to...
4: Especially Mm -hmm. watching, you know, as an associate, the the, the creative process that goes on, you know, on a new Broadway show, the amount that the director and the writers Mm -hmm. sit and the line is so blurred. And the audience never knows that, but... No, they think that the director told them to walk from here to there. (laughs) (laughs) Most people don't really... That's about it. Most general, I think, audience members don't really know what a director does. Like... I still get like, so when are you gonna do be in a play? Again? Oh my god, me yeah. too! <laughs> so I loved it so much when you were in yeah.
0: you know. You're just not doing anything if you're not directing. How can your mom go and be proud, huh? Yeah.
9: <laughs> I start, start to get it though. My parents are very theater savvy about this shows and my dad will be like, Those transitions were good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> now we're talking.
4: I've invited my parents to tech actually. Oh, that's so they, a great can, watch, idea. they yeah. can watch tech. They love it. They're like they, they're fascinated by tech. They love it. They're so. Especially, It'll I gave you my dad a microphone. Well, I I'm gave sorry. them a god. <laughs> yeah. I try not to use the god mic too much, but you know. Well, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love mom. it when people stand right next to someone on stage with the god That's mic. It's totally. <laughs> you have like, oh, the god mic.
0: Like
9: great, right, okay, let's do it again. That's right. Okay. <laughs> see, I have
4: this one note for you, just one thought for you, right there with the god mic. <laughs> well,
0: I, I imagine each of you has at least one of these. What show did you work on that you felt never found the audience it deserved? Oh, I, I would definitely
4: say indoor outdoor. Um, which is a play by Kenny Finkel that was about, it's a stunning play about to, about a cat. It ends up being this big metaphor for uh, about monogamy or anti-monogamy, but it's a play about cats, and uh, it was really bravely produced off-Broadway, Daryl Roth and, and Margo Lyon and uh, Hal Luftig, and it was a really good production, and uh, we got a really, I think, unfair review by Charles Isherwood um, that was not, it was negative, but it was also mocking and obnoxious and rude you know unfortunately opera Broadway theater is so dependent on that one review it it's all that actually matters so sell will take it because there's no budget right. to really advertise it so all you need is that one review and this uh this review was so obnoxious actually i think that there's like a i heard i haven't seen it yet but there's a there was like someone was talking about these reviews in and, and isherwood and this stuff and I think they started a blog about it called Isherwood's Cats because he wrote the review as a dialogue between two cats mocking the play. It was, wow. he, so he didn't actually review the play and it killed it and so we closed after seven weeks and um, I, I think it's an incredible play and a terrific one and really funny and smart and moving and, and it just ne- it never found its audience. And it,
0: Who's the author if anybody's looking this up?
4: His name is Kenny Finkel and it's a really terrific play. For people, it should be done at every college and every <laughs> regional theater in the country. It is superb.
9: I'm surprised that I'm going to say this, but I think I, I worked on a show in the NIM Festival early on called Monica the Musical, and uh, it was about the Lewinsky story. But it was actually, it's a, it was a sort of deceptive show because I think people's expectations were that it would be really sophomoric and crass. And, and it was actually a really sharp, I thought, political satire and really you know original music and and great material and I, I loved the process, I loved the people, it was really special, I thought. But you know, it was it's tricky too because people think that's what's the relevancy politically to that now. But what was interesting about it is that it had sort of a nostalgic angle of You know, God, wouldn't it be nice if our biggest problems now were our president's (laughs) sex life? You know, it was—it was was surprisingly profound too. But I just—I got such a kick out of it. It's always been a little pet project that I—that I loved. But I—it's a really difficult one to to shine the light on the right way. You know, if it's produced, it was in a small venue at the festival, and it was at, at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, and it came across you know more if it had been showcased i think in a different way a little more of a legitimate theater space it would have elevated you know your expectations to really look at it like a theater piece as opposed to sort of a little sketch sketch piece which sometimes being in that kind of environment will do to a show it's amazing Mm -hmm. just the environment Mm -hmm. it was in sort of changed almost altered the tone but i've always loved that one i don't know that it will come back around but it was it's something i always sort of do you know who the authors are oh yeah adam blau dan blau and tracy patach they're they're great people
8: Yeah. <laughs> Mine would have to be, it, it's had couple, a couple of titles, but the, the most recent one being Bad Kid School. It's about a uh, group of kids from all over the country who, for one reason or another, usually because they're misfits of some variety, have been sent to a private boarding school in Maine. And and the sort of antics and, and hilarities that ensue wind you sort of around toward... How these kids figure out what home is, away from home, and how home is what you make of it, and home is what you build around you—not necessarily the place where you grew up or the place where you misbehaved and were sent away—and it's a, it's a cute, uh, contemporary, uh, very story-oriented musical, and we've I've, I've done several. Uh, not productions, but readings and workshops, and and I always feel like it's been in front of the right people, and it was slated f- to move on into a couple of places, and both fell through, it for various reasons, and uh, and I just feel like maybe I'm the only one that thinks it's terrific, but it feels like everybody really likes it, and for some reason or another, it hasn't uh, it hasn't been.
0: And who are the authors?
8: Uh, one guy, John Greger is his name.
5: I think it 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 would be the Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. It was a really it was a really special. Experience another Christmas show, but uh, but uh, it was, <laughs> but it was really it was really wonderful and and I mean the special is only a half hour or whatever it is c- c- total, but we it, we turned it into an hour and a half, and uh, and Andrew Lipa's music was uh, truly it was just so terrific and, and it just was wonderful in how he brought it to life and um, the, I guess there was a problem at the end of the day with the rights or. Like the the last person, because the the Schultz state came and they loved it, and then like one person was like, we're not sure yet. We might have to wait on this, and so it never came to be. But it was. It's truly so wonderful. It was a beautiful, beautiful show.
0: We're pretty much routing out of time here, so I'll try to wrap up the last two questions and you can choose, each of you, what you want to kind of focus on. Really quickly, each of you say either, like, some people that you haven't worked with that you would most like to work with, or you can tell us a little bit about your latest or upcoming project.
4: Um, I already talked about my upcoming project, although I am writing a musical right now on a commission from the Huntington. so now I'm living the life of the other side. Wow. Nice. Um, yeah, it's very hard. It's very depressing and lonely. <laughs> I want to be in a room with <laughs> other people. But I always want to work with, um, I always think of, you know, I want to work with lots of new musicals, so I want to work with, you know, all these great composers that are around now, David Kirshenbaum and Kerrigan Lautermelk and all those yeah. guys. And, and I want to work with these amazing actors that I keep seeing in auditions for things and haven't been able mm-hmm. to figure out. So. Those like Kritzer and, and, and people like that find projects to do. I'm always like, let's find something to do. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned
9: it originally, but I have a show coming up. We start rehearsals on Monday called In the Heights, which is a new musical that I'm so excited about. I just think it's spectacular and really exciting and fresh and new, and it's a great team of sort of young, up and coming, really talented people. But it has really a, a sort of hip hop sensibility musically. But what's, what I'm excited about is that it has that sort of modern musicality, but it also, I think, has a really good integrated book musical happening at the same time simultaneously. So I'm intrigued to see you know, what that will evolve into. But uh, it's exciting. I think it's going to be something special. So we shall see. We start on Monday. <laughs> <laughs>
8: John? Several projects in various stages of uh, working with writers that haven't even gotten to a living room reading yet. But the one that I I would love to talk about is uh, Things to Ruin, which is by a a young composer named Joe Iconis. And uh, we, we did a concert version of it at Ars Nova in the summer, and then also for The Nymph, and now January 29th at Joe's Pub. And I think it's got both concert and theatrical appeal to it he's a young composer kind of writing in a theatrical way but incredibly contemporary but it's not the kind of contemporary that's either hip hop or rock it's it's he's a he to me is a it's like a brand new voice so i'm super